Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today we're joined by Jimmy Burrell. Hi, Jimmy. Hello, Ed. Hello. And Scott Voloshin. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, I'm glad to be on the show. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, both of you guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, we were just speaking off air, you know, at the t- currently for me and you, Scott, it's three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. So uh, we, I'm sure you could be doing something far more, you know, fun than sitting on your computer talking to us. But And also, Jimmy, you know, the beginning of the day, the last thing you want on a Saturday morning is doing this. But I really appreciate it. And I hope we can have some good time geeking out a little bit this morning and this afternoon. It's very strange time zones. Oh, my pleasure. Great. Can I just to point out, the guy who invented time zones is on is the Google Doodle today. Is it really? Ah, I have to put that in the show notes. Man, time zones. Uh, so, so how are things going, Jimmy? Oh, they're going quite well. Uh, just learning more F-sharp and more functional paradigms and concepts. Uh, lickety-split, as we say here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's actually interesting you mentioned that, because uh, that actually obviously is how we got uh, Scott to come on the show, really. is, is uh, So through one of, our old, one of our podcasts we did last year, um, it was the fun- uh, Falling into the Pit of Functional Success. Um, I post tweeted it out there and then Scott, you were kind enough to kind of, I think, listen to it or you at least, you know, kind of retweeted it and said, you know, check this out. And uh, yeah, then we started just having a little chat with you about maybe coming on because we're really big fans. I mean, through the podcast we did then, uh, you know, talking about F sharp for fun and profit. We, it's just the Bible. Uh, it really <laughs> okay, is. Well, thank like, you very much. Now, I really appreciate the work you do there. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I thought, you know, we'd devise like a little episode, maybe discussing like kind of functional programming and then obviously dabbling into the F-sharp stuff. Um, so kind of like I always like kind of started off with a guest is, is really kind of the root. How did you get into programming? Well, that's a good question. I've been programming very long time since the Earth's crust cooled, I like to say. <laughs> I, I do. I do love some of some of your uh, slides when you say like, "Here's a picture of me on holiday." Uh, they are great little. <laughs> yeah, that slide. That's for the people who haven't seen. It, that's a slide with me and some dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, I've been. I've been. I started off. Well, I tell you. So I, I actually. Um, I didn't have a. I didn't have a computer science degree. I have a, a math degree, but. Um, uh, and then I bummed around for a while. But then um, my dad had a K Pro portable pc or it was a, it was a cpm machine ah this yes was, this was back in the mid 80s that's how long ago this was Dark and green. yes it's actually a great it was a fantastic machine it, it was one of those ones where it was a little metal box and the keyboard kind of folded into the front of it and it had a little crt yes. which is about five inches <laughs> across <laughs> i mean it was basically and it was really heavy, you know. Uh, that was that was the ultimate technology in those. The fact you had a portable computer, I mean, a luggable, a luggable <laughs> computer. Yeah, well, they, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I started pro, and it had uh, DBase two on it. Oh yes, and WordStar. And WordStar, that's right. And I have to say, they were awesome programs. And DBase two, you know, the fact you could run a little database on this thing and. Um, you know, it was actually super impressive. You know, as long as you, you had to change the floppies every few minutes, but other than that, it worked great. So, um, so my dad, uh, I ended up doing some programming. I got into it. I thought this is the the greatest thing ever. 
because this is my this was sort of my first exposure to programming, and um, I just loved the thing that the, the thing that lo- that I loved then and I still love now is the thing that you can create something and you can kind of make it run and it just kind of takes off. And it's a bit like it was when mm-hmm. I was a kid. I used to play with Legos, and you know the idea you take these little things and you and you turn using your imagination and just and and nothing else you turn this these blocks into a real amazing thing and programming was how i felt when you know that that gave me the, exactly the same thrill and i still get that same thrill today when i when i make something and and it, you know it works it's like being frankenstein you know <laughs> so um so i got i got into db dbase 2 and then um, I got a DOS. I got a, a DOS machine that was pre-Windows, so I had a DOS machine. And I, two things really changed my life. Then, first of all, I got a Turbo Pascal compiler for ninety-nine bucks. <laughs> and I have to say, Turbo Pascal was the most amazing program ever because it, first of all, it fit on one floppy disk. And these are the days when a C compiler, first of all, C compiler would cost you five hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks. Some of them. Really expensive, and I couldn't afford it. And secondly, they would take up, you know, you need to have massive, you need to have like a hard drive or something crazy on your on your computer. And the thing about Turbo Pascal was um, it was fantastically fast and it worked with floppies. And I think it's one of the best programs ever made, actually. Um, Absolutely. And then, and then later on, shortly after that, I got uh, Smalltalk for DOS, which was incredible, and that again was very cheap. It's only ninety nine bucks, and um, that really blew my mind. So after I discovered Smalltalk, I was uh, I was an object oriented snob actually for a long time because when, anyone who's programmed Smalltalk will realise that all other programming languages are basically useless uh, just <laughs> compared to Smalltalk. And, um, yeah, which is still true, by the way. I mean, because Smalltalk is more than a programming language. There's a whole environment. It's not really a language. It's it's a, it's an environment for creating programs. Uh, and it's hard to explain. For someone who hasn't actually used it, it's really hard to explain why it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really, it's... it's it's Because everything in it is... A, everything in it is an object. Everything in it is programmable. So it's it, it's it's not just a language. It's like its own little operating system, and uh, so your your anything you know the, everything is an object, including the stack frame, including the compiler, including the you know all the windows and everything, and you have complete control of the entire system, and so that's really fantastic. You get this incredible sense of power, and it's incredibly beautiful language. It's very compact, and it's just a very consi- what I like about it also is it's a very consistent. Language. There's only two or three things you can actually do. It's only got three keywords, and there's only the only thing you can do is send a message to an object, and that's the entire programming language. And I really, I have to say, I really am a. In all the languages I like, I like this kind of having a single model of how the world works, rather than some languages like Perl, for example. You can do twenty. You can do everything. It's a kitchen sink language. So I definitely prefer a language where you know, for example, I love Python for the same reason. It's like one way to do it. You know. Yeah. So that's um, that's me. So then I got into doing small talk. I actually got that's when small talk was trendy, and you could actually get jobs doing small talk. And yeah, so you know, enterprise. I in one of my slides, I make fun of enterprise OO versus small talk. And um, the thing about when Java came out, and that was sort of the enterprise, and and C plus plus as well. 
to my mind, they didn't really understand what object-oriented programming was, which was this is a very, very dynamic, very fluid way of programming. And of course, enterprise programming is, is enterprise programming, no matter what language you're using. It, <laughs> you know, it's felt like, it felt like COBOL, basically. If you've been used to Smalltalk, Java is basically the OO version of COBOL. And so it's very, it's very heavy. Everything's very clunky. Uh, and then, of course, the, I mean, the pattern book, when the, when the Gang of Four book came out, you know, that was very interesting. I mean, I have to point out that pretty much all the stuff in Agile development came from people who use Smalltalk. So, that is always it's an interesting thing that that does kind of you do see the basis it's like Kent Beck you know loves small talk and things like that it it kind of originates from that yeah Martin Fowler used small talk Kent Beck used small talk so uh, when Kent Beck uh, talked about uh, test driven development that came from small talk when uh, the Gang of Four a lot of those patterns were small talk patterns and in, in the Gang of Four book small talk is one of the languages and um, so it's just very interesting that all the, a lot of the agile stuff is basically codifying small talk uh, patterns and practices and turning them into Java patterns and practices. And, it, and unfortunately, some of the stuff gets lost in translation. I think. I bet. And, and interesting then. So, so why is small talk then? Why is it not as popular anymore? I mean, like, why do we not learn it? And you know, because it seems like the people who loved it back then loved it and still have that passion for it, like you do. Yes. One of the problems is it's a very um, – I wrote a blog post actually on this called uh, Introvert versus Extrovert Programming Languages. And some programming languages are very introvert. They just they, – they're kind of talking to themselves all the time. They really don't like dealing with the outside world. And some some languages love to talk to the outside world. Some – you know, like doing I.O. is everything – is their whole reason for existence. And um, my feeling is that languages that like to talk to the outside world, extrovert languages, are popular because that's you actually get stuff done. You talk to the outside world. And small talk is actually what I would call a solipsistic language. It's, it's good at talking to the outside world, but it doesn't play well with other people. And so it's its own – because I say it's basically its own operating system. Uh, it's not just a program language. And so it's, it's fine, but it's, you know, it, in terms of working with the internet – this is because it came out pre-internet. Um, when it comes to working with source control, working with you know third-party libraries, everything was just a little bit painful and a little bit of friction, and and something which it just wasn't natural to the flow of Smalltalk. Now, the Smalltalk people have actually solved all these problems, but it's just it, it just doesn't quite fit when you have to deal with the outside world in Smalltalk. It's always just a little bit you know painful compared with. Uh, languages which are really designed for that from the very beginning that's really interesting um and so obviously fast forward then uh so long and you know functional programming um i'm just wondering like how did you actually get into functional programming then well i'm you know i'm a bit of a language junkie and so i've always liked learning new languages so when i was learning small talk i was also learning prologue and I was playing with, uh, you know, Icon and then Python and then, you know, so lots and lots of languages. And I'd heard about, at that time, I'd heard about functional programming languages. Um, at the time, the, the the big one would be Miranda, which was sort of the predecessor to Haskell. But I never really, they were kind of big and slow and I never really got into it. But then in, uh, I think it was, well, for a long time, I was just doing enterprise stuff. I was doing a lot of C-sharp programming and Python programming. 
I think around 2009, 2010, I was kind of getting bored of doing that. And I was like, okay, let's um, look around for another language to learn. And I thought, well, functional programming sounds cool. Let me look for a functional programming language. And then I realized that there was actually one built into Visual Studio, and that was F-sharp. And so I didn't even have to buy anything or install anything. I could just literally open a window and start typing. And so that's really why I got into F-sharp, just because it was it was the um, the language that was right already right in front of me. It was already on my desktop, you know. That was my story with F-sharp as well. Yeah, I was going to say, Jimmy, that sounds very much like your story. <laughs> it's nice to have it right. In, I mean, unfortunately, it's actually not that way anymore. You actually have to install F-sharp. But it, at the time, it just came with Visual Studio. Actually, I had I think I did it before it was part of Visual Studio. I did actually have to download it at the time when it was still a research project. But shortly after that, it became, it was 2010, it became part of Visual Studio properly. So so anyway, and then the, uh, it's very hard, you know, when you learn something, it's very hard to remember what it was like not knowing it. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 when I write my blog, I try very hard to think what it's like being an absolute beginner. And I remember when I was the first, you know, well, probably almost a year, probably, that I was just struggling with F sharp. And it's like, I don't understand how can you even do anything if you can't have a loop, you know, and if you can't assign, if right. you can't assign stuff, how can you do anything at all? I was, I was thinking, these people are crazy, you know. And so it does, I, I try and put myself in that mindset when I'm writing my blog post, because I think it's very easy to be snobby. Some functional programmers are quite snobby, and they say, well, it's obvious, you know, it's just a catamorphism for this, and it's a user functor for this. It's like, I've no idea what you're talking about. And so, yeah, I think that's that's one of the issues with, with the acceptance of functional programming is there's still quite a lot of... Uh, kind of snobby around it from from certain quarters you know and and, and so from there because i mean that's one thing actually from your you know from your blog that i really value and i think it's probably one of the things i think it made well it made it made it so you know inviting for me was the fact that you don't come across as elitist and you do understand these you know very mathematical concepts but you're able to apply them and provide kind of like here's actually how you would do something in it and you know because i think as a programmer you know yes it's very nice knowing all these things and i know you spoke about on functional geekery you know it's that kind of you know it's very nice knowing the mathematical stuff and knowing like kind of theoretical you know practice around it but actually apply applying it and being like a humanistic programmer and someone who you know actually you know wants to build something which you know is where I come from you know I love building things you know from a young age it was always you know learning programming for me was like what you said at the beginning where you're like Frankenstein you know you're building something how are these small building blocks and you're able to get to somewhere and solve a problem um you know it's, it's that's what really made me you know really like your blog yeah that's that's exactly well that's why I try and do it and I think um because the history of functional programming tends to have this mathematical background, uh, people are trying to use mathematical approaches. Uh, and like I say, yeah, I definitely come from, I wouldn't say the hacker school, but the sort of self-taught, knock it out, build it, and have fun playing with things school. And that school is not really amenable to doing proofs and, you know, all this kind of thing. So... Uh, you know, I think you know F sharp is is actually a quite a nice uh, language for that because it doesn't. The community is not really a, is there are some mathematical sides of things, but it's not actually a powerful enough language to do some of the stuff that you can do in in uh, Haskell or, or uh, you know other languages. So, and I guess that's what I mean by humanistic 
programmer. So let me just explain that. Um, there's there's a couple of I think there's kind of two schools of programming. One is the is the mathematical side and, and the rigorous side. Like someone like Dijkstra is, is 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 that it's about if you can't prove what you're doing, you shouldn't be programming. You know? It's wrong, yeah. It's wrong. <laughs> and I have you know I have some sympathy with that because you know a lot of computer programs are wrong, and I I think any tools that can help us uh, program better because we are fallible. We're we're pretty, you know, as humans we're not very good at logic. Um, anything that help us program better, those are good things. But the other school is the Seymour Papert and the Alan Kay um, side of things. And this is the idea that it's about building stuff and it's about having fun and it's about changing the way you think. Um, and it's about a tool for augmenting human abilities. You know, Doug, Doug Engelbart is, an, is another personal ted nelson there's a whole there's a whole school of people in that tradition and i put myself in that tradition which is it's it's you know how can we have fun how can we use programming to change the world in a better place you know make the world a better place if we can and that's it's about i guess it's putting people first that's it it's, it's not programming for the sake of programming it's programming for the sake of people Programming is an end is is it's a, it's a people oriented activity. It's not a it's not a mathematical oriented activity. So that's the fundamental difference. And and so yeah. No, absolutely. And Jimmy, where would you put yourself then? What would you kind of are you are you of the same ilk as us? Or I was just thinking about that, and I, I absolutely did get into programming much. Much like you, Ed, you know, I was fascinated at how you could build things. As Scott mentioned earlier, just take this box and and these keys and just by typing, you can almost build something out of nothing. And that really lit my fire, so to speak. And I absolutely recognize the truth of what Scott is saying. It is a, a people-oriented um, activity at even though I tend to be more introverted and not um, apply programming in that manner as in that manner as much as I should, uh, <laughs> I, I do recognize the truth of that. But uh, yeah, I'm not the world's most social creature, d- despite popular beliefs. I think the thing is, it's like it, I think that's a very much a trait, isn't it, of our kind of profession and from from where we've been, you know, kind of the person and and I think you know, like designing things. I mean, it is one of those things where what's the point in something like you know, it's programs are there to solve a problem, and if the problem is just using like something else and not even an application, then that's the problem. So, you know, that's the way the solution to use. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the path to least resistance of whatever you know you should use. Um, and obviously, at, at this time, uh, you know, functional programming is definitely kind of it's more of the mainstream now and it's really quite interesting and 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 on a on a, on a other podcast a javascript jabber podcast actually um a, one of the a person for lee byron from um facebook he, he builds the immutable js library and he builds like a lot of the react stuff and everything like that works in their in-house team there and um he was kind of talking about like the two camps and kind of how functional programming came to being because you know it's very interesting kind of looking at the history and kind of like there's two forks in a road you know there's fork in a road where it's split where, you know, you've got kind of the part, you know, you've got like the von Neumann architecture, sorry, and the Turing machines, and it's a very imperative programs, and you've got memory allocation and instruction by instruction. And then you've got the, the concept of like Alonzo Church's Lambda calculus. 
Uh, and that's like mathematical, you know, and then kind of at this time now, it seems to be diverging in. Uh, Scott, I'm just wondering, like for you, like uh, this is a very hard question, but what is functional programming for you? Uh, it's programming as if functions mattered. That's <laughs> I love it. I love it. That is a great answer. <laughs> Let me explain that. So um, obviously, most languages have, uh, most modern languages have functions or lambdas as as something you know as in built into the language i mean python has lambdas and c sharp has lambdas and so on java has lambdas now um but it's programming as if functions are the main thing that you do so if you want to do so if you want to pass a you know if you want to change the behavior of something you pass in a function if you want to uh build a build a system you glue a bunch of functions together uh if you want to in you know extend the functionality of something you you know you extend the you know add, you know, compose with another function so it's just it's 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 treating functions as the, the things that you do um to make programs and which means that functional programming is a style of programming it's not a purist this is not a purist thing i'm not and and, and purist in mm-hmm. both senses of the words purist in the sense that it's you know you can do functional programming in any language. You can do functional programming in any language that supports lambdas. I mean, C Sharp and Java and Python. It helps if the language has tools to make it easy for you. If 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 functions are carried by default, that makes life easier. If data is immutable by default, that makes e- things easier. So, you know, some languages make functional programming easier than others. But, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have uh, functional COBOL uh, and no doubt we will see functional COBOL very shortly, um, given that we had object-oriented COBOL, and you know. So, uh, but the, some like some people define functional programming as as in in terms of pure functions using the mathematical definition, and I actually don't use that definition myself because that eliminates all programming languages other than Haskell and Idris and you know I started so, to say that was a Haskell programmer <laughs> exactly exactly and so I think you know it's it's a style of programming it's not to me it's a, it's a just a, it's a style of programming now when you start using that pro- style of programming having pure functions is very important because it makes composing functions very you know much more sensible and it's if you if you don't have pure functions it makes it very hard to compose things functions that return unit for example that are all side effects are very hard to work with and functions and when you're composing functions from other functions if they have side effects it's hard to reason about them and so on and so forth but that is to me the comes second from the 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 concept that functions are the the tool that you use to to program with Fundamentally, like why, I suppose it's interesting because it has, you know, kind of, as you say, these, these two, you know, it's kind of diverged and, you know, our languages that we use on a day-to-day basis, like the Javas and like the Pythons, you know, they have these lambdas and you, people, as you say, you can use functional concepts and functional ideas kind of in these imperative-minded languages. Uh, I'm just wondering, why are we caring so much now about these functional languages and really kind of investing a lot of time into them? Well, that's a good question. I think this, it's because of... With the, the, it's to do with mutability and um, reasoning about the code. We have a lot of there are a lot of object-oriented patterns which are all about dependency management and about uh, managing behavior. You know, dependency injection and the visitor pattern and the strategy pattern and the decorator pattern and all, a lot of these things are really how to solve a certain kind of problem. And if you can bake 
the solution into the paradigm, these problems go away. So if you're just working with functions, if functions are all you have, then you do not have to worry about the single responsibility principle or the interface interface segregation principle. Yep. <laughs> um, they just, you know, every interface is a one, you know, becomes a one function, a one method interface. Um, you don't have to define special interface objects up front because every function is an interface. Um, you don't, you know, composition over inheritance becomes trivial because you don't have inheritance and so you have to use composition. You know, a lot of the things that we're striving for historically in object-oriented programming become very, very simple in functional programming. And I think, so ironically, um, I think that's why functional programming is becoming popular because people are realizing that you switch to this paradigm and a lot of the problems that you have traditionally in object-oriented programming just go away. So, so I think that's why it's become popular. It's nothing to do with the the mathematical side of things. It's it's just a really, again, it's a pragmatic way of solving real-world problems. And I think that, that you know, dependency management and, 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 and separating, I mean, another good example is separating effects, managing effects. You know, a lot of the stuff to do with dependency injection is trying to keep your, is to try to separate the, the IO stuff from the rest of your code. And again, in functional programming, that's so much easier than it is in object-oriented programming. So I was just going to add to that and say, you know, from a, a historical perspective also, back when Alonzo Church and, uh, well, after that, even in the 60s and 70s, machines just simply weren't, well, they weren't powerful enough to deliver the kind of... Um, functional language that we take for granted today i guess maybe perhaps only in the the mid to late 90s or uh somewhere around in there did machines really become powerful enough i think to uh, give us the kind of compilers we take for granted today yeah i mean although lisp lisp has been around and i would call lisp programming functional programming mostly it's again it's not pure but you are programming with functions and uh, funny enough, Smalltalk is actually quite a functional programming language. Um, in Smalltalk, you do a lot of stuff where you pass in lambdas to get stuff done. Because the ob the like, if you want to iterate over a collection, you actually pass in a lambda to a map function um, because you're not supposed to know about the internals of the collection. And uh, the lambda, it's not called a lambda in Smalltalk; it's called a block. But it's ex it's pretty much the same thing. So actually, funny enough, when I came to functional programming and there were things like, you know, map and filter and, you know, collect and um, fold and all this stuff, they were already in Smalltalk. And so I had actually no problem with those. That was, I was already familiar with that stuff. That is cool. Yeah, because I, I remember I've heard like, you know, like the collection pipelining and stuff in Smalltalk. And yeah, and Smalltalk kind of has the same pipelining thing. That's cool. Um, they, the, that was actually that was a, a standard pattern in Smalltalk that is called the cascade pattern, where you just return something which gets piped. It's just the input for the next thing. So kind of like a composition of some regard, like kind of composing things together to build up. Yeah, except the only difference with this with Smalltalk, you had to make an effort to do that. Uh, it was a pattern. Uh, it wasn't something that was inherent in the language, um, and in functional programming. It's it, you sort of get that for, for free, really, but it's definitely a nice small talk. Is um, small talk is yeah. It's 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 hard to explain, but yeah, some of the some of the patterns in small talk are actually quite functional in a way. Yeah, 
So, you know, you've got the functional programming and then you've got the imperative programming. And you mentioned, you know, the, and the, sorry, the object orientated that we use. I suppose we could probably say if you, if, you, if you kind of take away small talk and you look at like kind of the Javas and the kind of enterprise OO at this time. Um, and it's interesting kind of like how you said that really a lot of the problems that we've kind of solved in the OO world are simplified the solutions of them in the functional world. So would you say then that you could, that at this time, it's maybe replacing kind of, you know, these object-oriented languages just with functional? Or do you think there's a blend of, you know, both? Like there, there's a, there's pros to each kind of solution. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes object-oriented stuff, sometimes you really need objects. And it's when in that happen, when that happens... Um, it's really nice. Sometimes you need interfaces, uh, especially for things like plugins or something. Um, it's nice to have a language which supports both. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like F Sharp. It's a very pragmatic language. And so, uh, you know, the idea of having functional first, you, you, functions are the default way of doing things. And if you can have, if that doesn't work, you can switch to objects with, with pretty easily without too much pain. You know, and again, immutability by default. But if you need mutability, you can get it with you know without too much pain. If you don't have um, any kind of immutability, and if you don't have any kind of object-oriented stuff in in a, in a pure function language, you have to then jump through hoops to get that. And which is what you know Haskell you have to do in Haskell. And you could defend that by saying, um, well, that you know. The jumping through hoops is shows that you're not doing it. You know, it shows that it's a, it's a, a sort of an anti-pattern, and so it makes it's deliberately hard because you don't want to do it very often. But um, I don't know. I'm I'm pragmatic, so I, I, you know, sometimes <laughs> I like to take the easy way out and just define an interface or something, and just you know, I don't. I'm not. I guess I'm I'm not a purist in terms of. I don't think. I can, it just comes from the thinking of programming as as a people-oriented activity rather than a mathematical oriented. I don't really care how you do it i'm not going i don't i'm not one of these people who really cares how you program and is very dictatorial about it as long as you get as long as you solve the problem that's that is exactly it it's not a science it's not a mathematical kind of thing it is you know a, as you say a humanistic a people person thing and it's solving problems for people and it just so happens that the the way you're solving them is through building a program yeah and and also the other thing is almost all problems are not technical problems Almost all problems are people problems, and it's all about understanding the requirements. It's all about you know delivering something that people want. Um, I very much doubt. I mean, if you look at if you know if functional programming is so great, or every time there's a new uh, trendy thing, trendy programming language, um, I always say you know if you look at the businesses which are successful at solving problems. They use all sorts of programming languages. I mean, Facebook uses PHP, for God's sake, and they're very successful. So it's not, it. you know, you can't say that, you, if you, if, you know, that PHP people are going to fail and, and Haskell people are going to succeed because the evidence is exactly the opposite. So, I mean, I've, I mean, the irony is, of course, that has, Facebook is now hiring Haskell people to kind of fix up some of the problems with PHP. But, um, you know, getting stuff done. I mean, that's after they've already got stuff. They're using that to, to, to you know. So, I mean, I, I, you know, it's just interesting to see. It, to me, it's about getting stuff done. And, I, you know, to me, a type-safe, you know, relatively pure functional programming helps me get stuff done better. I mean, I find using PHP quite painful. Um, and I find using F-sharp easier. So, you know, from my point of view, that's why I like to use a programming language but in terms of actually solving a business problem 
I don't, I, you know, I don't care. It's, it's, it's solving the problem is the, is the important thing. You know, I've, I've either heard you say, uh, make that remark before about most problems being a people problem, or I've read it on your blog. I, I'm not sure I are on your website. I can't remember which, but I strongly agree with that. And I think partially, uh, it's, it's my history or my, the, quantity of time that I've solved problems with computer programming languages, you you come to realize that over time. But I, I heard you make a comment there that that I'd really like to ask a question about, and that, that is the types. I, I've um, found that, for me, programming in F-sharp is one of the best typed languages I've ever used. And I wonder if you could contrast uh, type la- a typed language like F-sharp, or, or just F-sharp, I suppose, with uh, the kind of types we used to have in languages like Turbo Pascal back in the day. Yes, well, I think there's a difference between, to me, this is the difference between a, t- a type versus a data structure. So in, 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 in Turbo Pascal or in C++, in, in, uh, C++ or, or C-sharp even, you're normally creating data structures to store data and you have to give them a name and so they are sort of types but that's really what they're for i think in functional programming because everything is inputs and outputs um and because of the kind of mathematical background you tend to think of types as the valid input for a function so uh, and the valid output for a function so i mean a good example is if i'm trying to validate an email uh, the input is some sort of string, um, but the output is not a string. The output is an element uh, of the set of all valid email addresses. And so I want to represent that uh, as a type. So I give that thing a name. The set of all valid email addresses I will call email, you know, email address. I'll give that a, a type name. And then another program which wants to send an email, I can say, well, you know, the input for that program should be uh, a valid email address. And rather than saying, well, this is a string that just happens to be a valid email address, I can represent that as I can say, well, it's, it has to be in the set of all valid email addresses. And that's the same type that was the output of the validation step. And so you're using types to define the valid inputs and outputs for each step in your program. And to me, that's a, it's quite a nice, because you sort of do that implicitly anyway. Um, and it, just the fact you can give these things labels uh makes makes the domain much more explicit and it makes your code much easier to understand would you say this is somehow related to uh, a phrase that you hear in the functional world a lot um or rather in typed languages a lot i guess uh, a type system that helps as opposed to one that gets in the way yeah exactly Yes, because I mean, if, if most people think of a type system, especially in in C sharp or Java, as something that um, kind of yeah, it's annoying, and it's like I have to. Especially <laughs> one of the reasons is you have to type, you have to explicitly put all the types, you know, in the parameters. Every single parameter has to have explicit type, and the return value has to have an explicit type. And when you have uh, local variables, you have to give them an explicit type, and you know, you just after a while you get fed up of doing that, and that's one of the reasons why people like dynamic language. It's one of the reasons why Python is such a nice language. Is because you can just like start coding and you don't have to worry about all this stuff. And 
Um, the nice thing about F sharp is, well, first of all, you don't have to declare the types most of the time. You get the type inference, so you, it looks like Python. Um, but yeah, that the, um, the using types as 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 the as the as the, as the API is just is just a, a a nice way of doing it. Yeah. Now that's incredibly interesting, actually, and and it's really interesting because in one in one of your talks, um, actually it's the DDD one where you you know you discuss kind of like how to use a good type system to actually define your domain. You know, I, I thought that was a really great talk, and and actually in another one, you know, the functional design patterns one, you actually talk about say, you know, one of the core principles of, of functional programming for you is that types are not classes. Yes. Um, would, would you mind kind of elaborating on that and what you mean? What, what is a type then in a functional paradigm as opposed to what we kind of observe it as as in the object orientated type? Yeah. Yeah, so so again, a type is just a set. It's just a name given to a set of values. Um, so the set of all valid emails, the set of all valid customer IDs. Obviously, there's. By the way, by the way, I just want to say I'm oversimplifying. In the in the academic world, there's big debate about what is a type, and uh, there's lots of discussion. Thomas Petrachek has a has a good uh, discussion of that on on one of his papers. Um, but from my point of view, a type is just is just a simple. Um, uh, set of values, which is again, it's that it's dumb. Well, first of all, in object-oriented world, a class is is meant to be a self-contained thing, and you're not even supposed to know what the data structure is in a class. Uh, in a in a in a true object, well, in a, I mean, the, the closest model for for true object-oriented programming is the actor model, where you send something a message. You wanted to do something, you send it a message, and it does it, and then it sends you back the result. That is, to me, the the true model of object-oriented programming and in small talk that's exactly how it works you send things messages and so you're not the whole point of, of object-oriented is all about the behavior it's that you're not even supposed to know anything about data there's no it's no data's not even supposed to exist it's all about the behavior so when i have a, a collection or something i don't care how it's implemented it just has certain behavior which i care about and i and i send it messages and ask it to do something it's very anthropomorphic you know um, and in functional programming, a type is all about the data. There's no behavior anywhere. Um, so in the, the types are very dumb. It's just a set of it's just a set of literally a set of data, and that's all it is. Um, and that's a that's big paradigm shift when you're coming from OO. When you spend in OO, you spend a lot of time trying to encapsulate things and working out the behavior. Uh, and in functional programming, you know, you have this data and the behavior or the functions are completely separate. And the data, it tends to be exposed, which is very scary if you're coming from an OO world because you're taught not to expose your data structures. But the big, I think, one of the insights I had is that because the data is dumb, you can compose the types just like you can compose functions. So you can glue two types together to make a bigger type. Uh, and that wouldn't—that's not really possible in OO because you can't really glue two classes together to make a bigger class. You have to write a lot of intermediate code. But in in functional programming, you literally can just like uh, you know use a tuple. You can glue them together sideways, or you can do glue them together vertically, which is like union types. Um, and that 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 composition of types is relies on the fact that types are dumb and they have no behavior. And so it, it sounds like, you know, it's, it's, I guess that's the difference also between functional model of types versus the 
model that you'd have in C or, or C++ or, 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 or Pascal of, of data structures? Because you tend not to compose data structures in the same way. You actually have to, it's not quite as easy to do the same thing. So I think this, the model of composition everywhere is definitely the kind of functional worldview. And one thing, actually, so so with like the kind of another thing from that talk is uh, really interesting is the kind of the differentiation between like input and output, which is what a function does in a functional language, as opposed to the request response response, sorry, that you get in like the OO world. I'm just wondering what, what are the differences then between the two? Yeah, I mean, it looks like it should be the same thing. But I, I think, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mental shift. So like I say, in the OO world, I think of actors. Uh, and you send a message, and it's a request to the actor of the, of the object, uh, and they deal with it, and they send you a response back. And um, it's just, it, I guess, the request-response model means that you, you, if you go to, if you go to like the distributed actor model, you might not get a response. Mm. You know, and so the idea is, once you've sent a message, it's really fire and forget. Um, but the input-output model is. It's very clear that if you have an input and an output, you can then compose, you can glue the output of one thing, to, you know, can connect the output of one thing to the input of the other thing. That's why I like the that railway track metaphor that I use all the time. It's such a great metaphor. Because, I really do like that. Yeah, because it's that's exactly. I mean, it makes it really obvious that it's like a Hornby track that you is. just build it together. That's it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, and to me, if you have that that metaphor, makes it really obvious that that's how you make things you glue track together and you get a bigger piece of track and so the the object model you can't you know even though i say this the request response in theory should be the same but in practice it doesn't work that way you have to create a, if you want to glue two objects together you have to then create a new object and then put both of them inside and then and then you have to wrap all the methods so think something like the law of demeter where you're not supposed to access the internals or something you're not have to, you're not meant to dot into things too much so if you want to compose two objects you have to write a third object and then for every single method on one of the inner objects you have to basically write the same object on the same method on the outer object and that's very painful and we've i'm sure we've all done that and that's kind of an anti an explosion of methods yeah, absolutely. An yeah. you're doing it just so that you can pass method you can pass through data to one of the inner uh, objects and when you're doing that it's like that feels nasty and it feels like there's there's you shouldn't be doing that and it you shouldn't be doing that and it tells you that there's a there's you know there's a there's a problem with your paradigm if you have to write a lot of boilerplate code to do something which really should be straightforward i think that's one thing with these functional languages that really you know you can kind of you see the meat of the actual problem more often as opposed to you know in like and again this could be the enterprise oh well where you do see a lot of boilerplate that boilerplate that has to be created every time yeah and then you have the like say things like dependency injection um you know in in the OL world you have dependency injection then you have a debate about how you should do dependency injection you know should it be uh through constructors or through properties and then you have uh, dependency injection frameworks, inversion of control, you know, IOC containers, and you have all this stuff to solve one problem, which is how do I pass something into another object? Now, in, in the functional worlds, you don't have that. The whole, the whole problem just goes away. It's just, just passing functions. You just pass in functions, exactly. And it's not anything... Functions are values. It's exactly, just great. Exactly. And you're not, it's nothing special. You don't have to come up with a whole new pattern. It's just, it, you know, the language supports it out of the box. So I guess that's um, 
that's the kind of that's I guess an example of why I think functional programming is nice, you know, because you kind of get this stuff for free. Now, there's always a downside, and uh, especially in a tight functional language, it's quite easy to be snobby and say, you know, this is so much superior. But, you know, the functional programmers also do jump through hoops to do something that's trivial in a object-oriented language. So I'm not going to be too smug about that. But for a lot of things, um, yeah, I, I do think I still think the functional model is is better by default for, as a starting point. It's a great starting point. Yeah. And another thing, actually, in, in the same uh, in the same uh, presentation that you give is the, is the idea of like totality in functions, and that just was it blew my mind. It was aha moment with a lot of things, uh, and it's how again it's one of these things where we've kind of I wouldn't say solved it in the wrong way in like say in these uh, enterprise OO and kind of how we do it with throwing exceptions and stuff. But so so what actually does then? What do you mean by function totality? Um, just that every input has an output. So a function that says it can handle an input but doesn't, throws an exception or just crashes, um, is is very hard to work with. And uh, so in, the, in that talk, I give the example of dividing by zero. A function that accepts a zero as input, um, and then if you give it a zero as input, it just crashes. And to me, that's uh, a bad function. It's, it makes it very hard. If some inputs just crash... That's, that's it. a really bad. That's a bad design. You can't you reason know? about it, can exactly. you? Really, yeah. it just makes it's just annoying. And so, um, and this is where the types come in. So you can just say, you know, I define a type called non-zero integer, and that is the input for this function. And if you give me one of those things, I guarantee I'll never crash. Um, or in that example, you can also extend the output. So rather than saying I'll always give you an integer back. You can say, well, I'll sometimes give you an integer back, but if you give me a zero, I'll give you nothing back. But in either case, your your function doesn't crash. That's it. You're constraining it in such a way that allows you to always reason about it correctly. And not only that, but it's, it's self-documenting. If I have a function that says it takes a non-zero integer as input, it's, 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 very, it's very clear that... Um, what this function is needing, you know, or if this function sometimes returns something and sometimes doesn't because it uses the option type, again, that's very clear that you'll have to handle the case when it doesn't work. But it's not going to crash the program. It's just it's going to make it very explicit that you have to handle the case where it couldn't do something. And so that way, total functions, not only are they nice because your, your program doesn't crash, but... Um, that is, they act as, as you know, it forces you to make the functions more self-documenting. I mean, there's a lot of object-oriented, uh, you know, in classic C sharp and Java, you have these functions, and it's like they could throw any of ten different exceptions, and you've no idea, really, without reading the documentation, what's going to happen. Now, it's true that some exceptions, you know, out of memory exceptions and stuff, you can't handle. They're those. exceptional. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they are. Really, exceptional. Yeah, I mean, in that case, your program should just crash. Uh, there's no point trying to handle that. But, you know, a divide by zero error shouldn't crash your program. And you should be handling that with the domain like, exactly. that you're, you're, you're within. Exactly. It should, be, it should be explicitly documented that this is the valid input and this is the valid output. And, I, again, this is the way of thinking. When you start thinking of inputs and outputs and you go through that paradigm shift of thinking of functions that way, you start seeing all this stuff. Like the, to- the whole thing of totality, it's something which is kind of obvious when you have functions and it's not at all obvious when you have objects because it's not um 
it's you know it's not obvious that it's a problem with objects. Now I just want to point out in Smalltalk it's not a problem either because in Smalltalk it's only a problem in typed object-oriented languages. In Smalltalk you would return nil or something. Um, you don't throw exceptions in Smalltalk either, but that's because it's untyped. It's a dynamic language, so you can return any type of object. And so in that case, you just return a different kind of object, and that's not a problem because there's no types. <laughs> so it's, a, <laughs> it's these hybrid languages like C Sharp and Java where you have to return – the type system uh, says that you're returning an integer or a string or whatever, but it's actually lying. And to me, that's the worst of both worlds. If you have a pure dynamic language like Smalltalk or Python, it's not or Ruby, it's not a problem. If you have a, a strict functional programming language like Haskell or F Sharp, it's not a problem. It's it, funny enough, it's the typed object-oriented languages where I think you have the most uh, just issues. They're, they're basically lying about, and so you have to invent exceptions. Uh, and then exceptions, of course, are just a, a terrible thing. So that's what I was going to ask, like your opinion on exceptions um, and, and how kind of, you know, that, so taking the concepts that you have from like, the functional world now, and if you do have to go back to the C sharps and, and those kind of, and even Java's maybe, like how, how, how has you found that like your programming style has changed? Um, yeah, it's definitely changed when I write C sharp. Um, I tend to, for starters, I make everything immutable by default now. Uh, I use lambdas everywhere. And uh, if I want to, so for example, if I'm doing the strategy pattern in C Sharp, I would probably just pass in a Lambda. I wouldn't bother to define an interface and then pass in an instance of that interface, you know. So that kind of thing. Uh, and I tend to I tend to worry about what the output of something is. In, um, in object-oriented program, you tend to worry about what the input is, but the output normally just mutates. You don't normally have an output. You tend to just mutate the object. That's it. You get void, and then it's just like yeah. You have a lot. Of, you have a lot of void methods, and um, I try and avoid, you know, void methods now. So that's something. And I have even used. I mean, I do even use things like option, and I use the result type, the, the success or failure type, and I use the option type, and um, even in C sharp, I try and do that now. Um, it depends on the on the team that you're working with, uh, how sophisticated. There are some people who do some really serious functional programming in C Sharp, where, ever, where they're using monads and everything in C Sharp. And it, you have to have a basically you have to have a team who already understands functional programming before I would do that. I would I would I would always care about making sure the code is maintainable by other people. Again, that's the humanistic side, isn't it? And kind of being pragmatic and actually caring about, again, it's designed by humans for humans. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you have to, it's all about designing the something that works. There's nothing more annoying than someone who comes onto your team and rewrites all your codes uh, to make it perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, um, I mean, I've probably been, when I was younger, I, I plead guilty to that myself. And I think that's so. I, I you know, uh, you just get a you get a pull request with just all these changes, and yeah. it's just like, yeah, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather just to me. I'd rather write my. When I was younger, I, you know, I tried to be clever, and I was trying to be using the cool technology and the cool, you know. And if something new came along, I just if you just read an article by something, it's like, oh yeah, let me let me change all my code. Yep, use that's the, it. Let me do that now. And you want now. to be the ah, look at me. Yeah, exactly. And so now I try and write my code to be as 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 straightforward and as dumb as possible. And I try and avoid. I basically try and avoid 
tricks and I try and avoid I'm actually very anti trendy stuff so I try to, I, I basically don't use any library which hasn't been around for a couple of years you know so um, if I was a JavaScript program I'd be p- pulling my hair out <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't survive I, you know so oh man the I'm, churn rate is yeah just exactly I couldn't I couldn't yeah. do that and I, again because it's about solving problems so I have no problem using you know a library you know which is five years old if it's if it's around if it's working great you know so yeah it's not to me it's not about being clever it's about getting the job done and making it really making it trying to make it obvious for somebody else who comes along so in my even in my f sharp code i don't use i try and make it as obvious as possible i don't i try to avoid clever tricks if i can because first of all i'm not as clever as some of the people i mean there's some amazing stuff that people have done by people who are much cleverer than me and um i'm you know in all of some of that stuff but i i personally try and just stay away from clever stuff well i think i think that's a great way to be um i really do and 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 actually so it's following on i know you've mentioned actually kind of composition um and that's one of the key things as well with functional programming and building up and composing functions together and and putting you know different bits of railway track together to make new encapsulating them and and actually one thing that i really I really thought was great. And again, it was this aha moment of building applications and like people thinking, well, yeah, it's fine. You know, can you do it? Use functional programming languages for this? You know, can you, you know, can I build, you know, the simple web application that I would actually have? And again, if you decompose it, you've got your low leper operations, you know, like your string to upper and all this type of stuff. Then you compose them to be services and you compose them to be use cases and eventually you compose them to be web applications. And, and I just say like, yeah, that really to me was a great kind of, um, kind of reasoning about it. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I guess it's the nice thing of using the same pattern everywhere or the same approach everywhere. It's nice to me if you can, if you don't have to kind of switch to use different styles of programming depending on the size of the program. And um, so, to me, that can just it kind of makes makes sense that once once you have that way of doing stuff. You can you can use it at a very high level. You can use it at a low level, and it's the same approach. No, it's absolutely great. And 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 one thing you do say is that encapsulation is is fractal. Yeah. Would you mind like kind of mentioning what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, first of all, fractal fractal has a specific mathematical meaning, so it's not really a fractal. You, to be fair, you do always disclaim with that. You do say well, that every time. That's, I, I, <laughs> that's because I have a mathematical. It's like my mathematical yeah. friends will beat me up if I say. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's 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 like people using exponential or something in the wrong way. It's it's just something that annoys people. But uh, in a sense of self-similar, that using the same, you know, the thing. One thing about fractals is that they're the scale. Things look the same at different scales. Uh, so I mean, that's one of sort of the definition of being fractal is that you look at a piece of coastline, and you can't tell whether the coastline is you know fifty miles along or it's like ten feet. Because it looks, it's just a ziggy zaggy yeah. uh, in both cases. So um, the functional program is the same thing. It's you're you're gluing functions together, and whether you're gluing functions down at the micro scale, or whether you're gluing functions together at a at a macro scale at an application level, you're using the same techniques uh, in both cases. You don't have to use uh, different techniques. So that's all I meant. It's just a, it's just a, it's just me being trying to use a clever buzzword to make people. <laughs> well, no, it, and it makes complete. I mean, it really does make sense. You know what you're saying. You know, the macro micro level is exactly the same. 
And it simplifies kind of our thinking about how building applications, you know, from the small to the big, you know, you're using the same reasoning. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I like models where it, there's a consistent approach. Um, and, you know, functional programming has that. Now, funnily enough, object-oriented, proper object-oriented programming, which, by which I mean small talk, <laughs> uh, <laughs> has, has the same approach because everything, even integers, are objects. So you don't have this distinction between uh, value types, reference types and value types and and primitive types versus uh, classes and so on. They're all the same thing in Smalltalk. And so that's one of the nice things about Smalltalk. Now, in again, in, in C Sharp and Java, they make a distinction between integers and objects and again so you, you so you lo- you have to be aware of that distinction that and you lose some of the purity of the design you know yeah it's interesting why, why is that do you think it was just because of trying to the transition to get people to use our languages it would be too much or is it an optimization issue because i know like scala they have like that you know they i mean they do i suppose in java as well you do have the integer class and stuff and it can be a auto box and unbox and stuff but still maintaining those primitives as a distinct thing compared to being like an object yeah, some of it's performance. I mean, it is true that having um, value types uh, really helps with performance. So, you know, stack-based types as opposed to uh, types just put on the heap, values that are put on the heap, that's really nice. Um, so, yeah, in a language which, which doesn't do that, uh, then you do have performance overhead. Uh, it's, I, I guess that's the kind of thing about being pragmatic versus being pure. Um, I think uh, I'm not a Ruby expert, but I'm pretty sure that Ruby ha- treats integers as objects. Yeah, that that's another language that does like a nice thing like that, where yeah. everything's an object. And even something like Objective C. So Objective C was trying to port Smalltalk concepts to C, and in my mind, they did a pretty good job. It's a kind of bit weird, but if you understand Smalltalk, uh, a lot of the stuff in Objective C makes a lot of sense if you if you don't understand small talk a lot of it just seems downright weird but um, <laughs> you know i think it's just uh, it doesn't you can do it. It, it it's just it was a decision i think they made to make life easier for themselves um you know and 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 uh, also they don't really you don't really have the whole meta programming stuff in uh, in like in small talk everything is an object including the classes so you can ask an object what its class is and then you can ask the class what its class is, and you can ask the class class what its class is. Everything, you know, everything is an object. There's no language construct yeah, that is just that. Yeah. yeah, you don't have a special kind of reflection uh, libraries like you do in C Sharp and Java. It's just everything is the same. So in in you know in in the kind of statically typed object oriented language, you have to understand that there's different layers. You're not using the same paradigm. If you're doing reflection. That's very different from doing regular uh, programming and, you know, primitives are different from objects and so on. So you have to understand all this stuff, which you could argue gets in the way. I mean, someone like Alan Kay would say this is just getting in the way of uh, understanding how programming works. And, and the pure, you know, you'd say that the argument that Alan Kay would say is just focus on the human side of things and the machine will eventually catch up. You know, the CPUs will eventually get fast enough that you don't have to worry about it, which is which is pretty true. Of course, programmers always find a way to make the CPUs slow, no matter how fast they are, that's that's our fault. That's not the. I mean, the, you know, some, uh, that's not the language's fault. The language, you know, small talk is super fast on a modern computer. It's, you know, there's there's no problem there. It's 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 designing the systems, writing all this code that makes things slow. 
zooming out for, I mean, really, this is what we're talking about, architectural patterns in the macro, going back to the fractal. But are there, Scott, uh, in your experience, are there any uh, program architectural patterns that are more or less suited to functional programming languages? Um, Yes, I would say that uh, microservices and using queues. I mean, one of the problems that you have with um, using functions as the building block is you do hit a barrier. At some point, your function reaches a certain size, and you have to have some input and output for that function. Um, And functions need to communicate with other functions uh, to get, you know, in a big application to get stuff done. And to me, using uh, queues... Uh, and um, is a is a is a perfect way of doing that. This function does something; it has some sort of output. Uh, some other function is going to process that output, but I want to decouple these functions. I don't care. I don't really want the first function to know about the second function. So the first function is just going to take the output and stick it on a queue, and the second function is going to take its input from some queue and process it and stick it on some, you know, its output is going to go on some other queue and and, and that's going to be the input for a third function and so on. That's a, To me, that's a very natural model for, for very large-scale functional programming. And, of course, that is very much what, you know, stream processing is like and what uh, microservices is like and and so on and so forth. So a lot of the, a lot of the trendy stuff... In um, in current architectures, again, I think that's suited quite well for functional programming because I think functions, when they get too big, if they have too many dependencies and they, they just become, just like anything, it becomes unmanageable. And it, that's one of the nice things about, this is, again, where the language helps you because in, in a functional in a particular function, you have to pass in every single dependency for that function because there's no global... You know, I mean, you don't have to, but that's the idea. It makes it, you know, the ideal is to do that, and it's kind of easy in functional programming. But if you start having, you know, ten dependencies, twenty dependencies, fifty dependencies, it gets really hard. It it just becomes harder and harder and harder to work with. And so, at some point, there's a as a a natural size to a function, which just it just becomes unmanageable to have that many dependencies. Mm-hmm. And at that point your function is probably big enough. Your function at that point is probably trying to do too many things. And this is where you get the kind of single responsibility principle falling out naturally. When you when you have too many dependencies in your passing, and then your, your function is probably doing too many things. And rather than having to have a pattern that says, okay, don't do that, you naturally don't do it because it's so painful. And um, so you naturally sort of have an upper bound on, on the size of a... Of a of a function, and that means now you need to focus on how do the functions communicate with other functions, and that's, like I say, naturally either using queues or, um, you know, event store or, I don't know, but you know all the all the kind of trendy patterns, you know, uh, log based things like Kafka or something, um, all the trendy patterns just fall naturally out of dealing with doing functions at large scales, yeah. So it sounds like the internet is a good problem domain for functional programming. Uh, the internet is quite a big, yeah. I mean, the internet is an interesting uh, architecturally. The internet's a very interesting system. I mean, the internet is basically the actor model 
writ large. At some point, when you start having functions and queues, then you're you're kind of leaning back towards the actor model. Uh, I guess the difference is that with pure functions, the the actors are pure actors and they have no internal state. And again, that leads that's that's one of the desirable uh, things to have in actors is to have stateless actors because they're scalable and scalable is the buzzword, you know. But uh, it also makes things easy to reason about. So yeah, stateless actors are basically like functions with queues. So they start they start blur- they start blurring into each other. You know, a lot of the things. Again, there's no answer. There's no there's no perfect architecture. But right. uh, that's how I would do it if I had a if I had a very big system and I needed to have f- functions that communicate with each other. Actually, another interesting thing that you um, again in that talk and this talk I've I've listened to a couple of the ones you did because you have a couple and recordings of them and they're slightly different and like one was a little longer and it was it was yeah really interesting to go through <laughs> okay. them. Okay. And, and, and I should, by the way, I sh- I should point out that I don't claim to be an expert in any of this stuff. Um, I do this. I really, I like to help other people learn, and I learn by doing that. I learn myself, so um, I'm you know anyone listening to my talks shouldn't say this is the only true. I'm not trying to say this is the one true way of doing things. This is just my opinion, and it's sort of what I've learned from my own way of thinking about things. So. You know, but I think again, I think that's the great thing about it is you're coming from a mindset of you know teaching and not trying to be you know elitist and stuff and and understanding you know that you know to be in the mindset. I think that's where the blog you know came in where you were learning when you were doing the blog. So that you know the the reasoning and the understanding comes from a place of someone who's trying to learn as opposed to someone who's mastered it already and is trying to say, well, don't you already get this? Like I I know this, it makes sense, and you know being able to unlock it in certain ways as being that. I think there's the value in being kind of always being the learner and always being kind of the novice yeah i think definitely definitely um certainly i <laughs> i feel like i'm always learning but yeah i definitely I, I definitely try and approach things from that way and um i people who always who know more than me you know if people who are kind of saying i it's, just, it's a different style of learning and i think just to go back to the mathematical thing i think that's also a, a subtle difference between the math the, the way that people that math is taught um versus other subjects are taught in in a typical like in a university math course they give you a theorem uh you know here's this theorem let's prove it and you go you spend a lot of time and you don't even know why this thing is useful Mm. Um, and part of, part of the theory is that we shouldn't even care because it's a very beautiful <laughs> theorem. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, but if it is useful, that normally comes later on. Uh, you, you after after you've done it, then you realise. Then they say, okay, well, here's all the ways you can actually use this thing in practice. But it's uh, the the model for for mathematical teaching is to do is to give you the answer and then give you the reasons for the thing afterwards. And um, t- to me, you know, that's fine in a, in an academic setting, but in in a people who are who are teaching self teaching themselves anything, I think it's really important to have the motivation, and to have lots and lots of examples. And so I always try and say, well, here's an example of something. How would you solve this? Or oh, here's it. another kind of problem. How would you solve this? Oh, well, there's something in common with these solutions. And now we're going to give it the name. We're going to say, okay, this is what a monad is, or something, rather than saying. 
you know, here's the definition of a monad, then why is it useful? And that's it, it, that's why people get so freaked out by all this jargon, because it's you're giving people all this jargon rather than saying, here's a, a particular practical problem and here's a, a particular practical solution. And to be honest, you don't even need to know the names of the things. If you've got a, a solution to something, fine. You, you don't need to know anything more than that, really. You know, if you want to learn more than that, that's fine. But from a solution point of view, if you've got a solution to a problem, the fact that you call it a certain name and it falls into a certain pattern, that's actually irrelevant initially. It's only when you get more experience that you might start seeing patterns across multiple solutions. But initially, why should you even care? You know, As a newcomer to F-sharp, I can identify with that uh, by going through your railway-oriented programming uh, material on your website. Uh, I learned about monads, and I did not even know I was learning about monads. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and it's like, well, I don't, you see, monads is this, is this kind of horrible buzzword that really interferes with learning, I think. Because you don't need, technically, they're not monads. They're an instance of a monad. And you don't even need to know that to solve that particular problem of error handling. That, you know, those are the tools you can do with error handling. And if you've got another problem like working with async, then there's a tool for that. And if you're working with lists or something, there's a tool for that. The fact that they have something in common is actually really not relevant when you're first starting out. You, uh, you know, and that's, I guess, one of my concerns about Haskell is you have to learn about monads before you even get to Hello World. Like in the in the Haskell books, Hello World is normally like in the seventh chapter. So you have to learn. You have to you have to learn about monads before you can even print "Hello World" to the console. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I understand why they do that, but to me, that's a bit much. That really that makes that's why people find Haskell so scary. I think because you just want to start getting stuff done, and all this other stuff. I think the patterns come afterwards after you've got a lot of experience with different solutions. When you see some commonality between the solutions, then then you can give it a name. But giving it the name first, expecting people to memorize the monad laws, and then trying to figure out why this is useful, I think this is totally the wrong approach to, to learning functional programming. Kind of tough for sure. Yeah. Uh, I have found your website to be very helpful, and I would uh, just like to say thank you very much for all that material. Uh, it's uh, obviously a labor of love. Um, because boy, you you have quite a volume of content. I'm still working through it. In fact, yeah, I I have a lot. I I don't know. I guess it's because I'm very long winded when I write my <laughs> my each of my posts. I like I just need to say this. Oh, and, and I also just in case someone has this question, I should probably just answer this question. And they end up being super super long. And uh, I I guess that's okay because people seem to find it useful. But um. Yeah, there. Again, every time I try and learn something, I try and make it into a blog post. So, I, I haven't posted very much last year, but I'm going to try and post a lot more this year. But um, it's just, it's just kind of a labour. I really enjoy it. I mean, it's it's satisfying to me when when people say nice things about the blog. That's kind of nice, you know. Absolutely. And with actually the railway orientated programming uh, kind of concept, I'm just wondering, like, would you mind explaining what that actually is then? And, and also, how did you come up with the railway analogy? Yeah. OK, so the I've been using the railway and the, 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 the functions as railways with inputs and outputs. And um, because that's quite I, I don't think I'm the first person to to do that. And then I was teaching myself 
the error handling and there was a lot of I was basically I had to read a lot of Haskell blogs and and I was like I don't understand that you know they're talking about either monads and it's like what yeah. <laughs> and so and I was thinking well the problem the fundamental problem is you have you know inputs and outputs and you have two outputs rather than one one output You've got a set of points <laughs> yeah and so it's like well okay if I was using the railway analogy that would be like yeah some points or, or switches in America and um the problem then becomes how do you glue those together and to me then it, the, the, it made a lot more sense to me i thought well this is quite a nice way it helped me understand it and i thought well maybe i'll you know explain it to other people this way and when i first posted that i thought i thought it was actually a really terrible post uh i thought i was kind of embarrassed by it i thought oh, this is really are people going to hate me for posting this um you know, if you look at my original tweet where I did that, it, it came across as like, oh, I think this is a really bad analogy, but hopefully it'll be useful. And it turned out to be my most popular post. So that was interesting. And it really turned out that a lot of people seem to like that analogy, which goes to show that metaphors are important. You know, the, the whole railway-oriented thing, you know, people have, some of the functional people, have uh, the, the serious functional people have been very critical of me for, for for dumbing down monads and saying you're using these metaphors and you're really hiding what's really going on and uh in my post i actually do address that and it's like i don't think so because i'm not you know i'm trying to get the concepts of course once you get the concepts of course then you can go back and look at monads and the monads make more sense then but um i think getting the concepts of course is much more important and if you can use an analogy to help that then i'm, I'm in favor of that totally so actually, what has yeah, like the reception been from your mathematical friends and the stuff? You say that, do they find, they say these analogies and these kind of metaphors a little bit kind of wrong? Or are they are they happy that you're bringing more people into the world of kind of understanding these things? Well, it depends on the, now, the, it's what's interesting is the real mathematical people have no problem with metaphors and analogies because they use them all the time. Um, and this is actually, I think there's a little bit of math envy in the functional programming world. Um because uh, it's like we want to be more mathematical. But like in my experience, mathematicians have no problems with using visualizations and, and analogies and stuff because they think that way. Um, it's if you're if you're the coming from the serious mathematical side of programming, uh, some people think that you should really just. The Dijkstra model is like don't try and cover it up. Just you know tell the truth. But I like I say I don't think. I think that's the truth. Things like using monads, that's a very Haskell-oriented way of thinking about it. You can use these same concepts in C-sharp or, or Python or JavaScript. And, you know, you're not really using monads. I think that's a, it's, you're imposing mathematical terminology. So my, my pure math friends, you know, would be very skeptical because a lot of the stuff programming isn't maths i think i guess that's another division i don't think programming is mathematical and um there's so many you know a mathematician would laugh would laugh the head off at some of the things that programmers say because you know like for example <laughs> well i mean here's i'll give you a good example let's say that in 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 math you can just say a triangle you know has three points uh which are not in a line which are not in a line right that would be a sort of a definition of a triangle that's a definition of a triangle right in a mathematical that's it you don't have to say you don't have to prove that a triangle has three points 
Now, in, in programming, if I define uh, an interface, an I-triangle interface, I might have to have some unit tests to prove um, that the triangle only has three sides and, the, and the, the only three points and the points aren't in a row and the points aren't, you know. I have to write all these tests. And it's like, you don't have to do that in maths because it's, it's, it's you know, you don't test that a triangle has, that's by definition. So the very fact that you have to test something makes it automatically non to me it's, it makes it that's the difference between programming and maths you don't have to prove anything you know even in a in even in a in a in a, a language a, a, a serious proof type language like agda or cock or something you still don't prove you know in mathematics you don't prove that a triangle has three points you, that's not something you have to prove it just by comes out by definition so for example in in uh, the, the example in monads in mathematics the monad laws are not monad laws. They are, by definition, what a monad is. You don't have to prove that a monad supports these things. That's if it if it's if it doesn't support the thing, it's not a monad. You don't you know. But in in functional programming, you might have to in a programming language, you might have something called a monad that's not actually a monad until you prove that it supports the monad laws. So to me, that's that's really actually from a mathematical point of view, that's actually making things more confusing. Don't call something a monad if it isn't a monad, you know. So like in Haskell, you have a monad type class, and then just because it's a monad type class doesn't mean it satisfies the monad laws. And 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 you know, they're impure. Even in Haskell, you can throw exceptions. And so there's just a whole, you know, I guess. I, I'm 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 leery about trying to impose mathematical concepts on programming. I really don't think it's that helpful because it's not it's not really proper mathematics. Proper mathematics is coming from somewhere completely different from programming. Really interesting. And Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been so interesting. And Jimmy, have you got any other questions? No, I think not. We've probably detained Mr. Washington. I was, I was thinking we've uh, racked up at least an hour and a half with you. I'm, I'm re- again, really, yeah, really appreciate it. That's all right. It's fun. Brilliant. And, and I mean, we've got obviously there's a couple of bits we, we weren't able to touch on there, but it'd be great maybe to get you on the show again sometime. Uh, we could yeah, geek out again a bit. Sure. I'd be happy to. Awesome. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode. Really interesting. And um, we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe. <laughs>